Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn. And I'm Chris Noble. And we're on a journey to explore the brightest and most innovative minds and initiatives in social purpose. Today, companies and brands must stand for something meaningful. They have to have a social purpose and bring that purpose forward to their employees, their customers, and their community. Each episode, we're talking to leaders at Fortune 100 companies, global brands, social enterprise startups, NGOs, and everything in between. We'll be taking a deep dive to learn how they are integrating purpose into their organizations. To benefit both business and society for enduring impact. Join us. Thanks for joining our show today with Colleen Finn Reidenauer, Chief Development Officer of Habitat for Humanity International. They're more than just housing, affordable housing. They have expanded their brand to include many other activities, again, creating a larger umbrella for the organization to bring more corporates in, to bring more volunteers in, to bring more funds in. We're going to hear about how a very um, well-known and well-respected NGO grows. We're also going to learn about insights into being a great partner. Because we know that corporates today are looking for great partners and certainly for employee engagement. But we're also going to learn about the many other aspects that a corporation can get engaged with a very well-known and thoughtful not-for-profit such as Habitat. So let's get started. Here's the background on Habitat for Humanity Worldwide. They were founded in 1976, and today their headquarters are in Atlanta, Georgia. Their revenue in 2019 was over $300 million. They had over 1.4 million volunteers last year. Since their founding, they have helped over 29 million people in more than 70 countries find affordable housing, And they also have their own retail operation called ReStores, over 1,000 in five countries, mostly in the U.S., that sell donated goods where those funds go back to local Habitat-affiliated groups. We're going to talk about all of those things because this is key learnings for our not-for-profit listeners as well as our corporate listeners Lots of great information here. So welcome to the show, Colleen. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we are thrilled to have you. It's a wonderful, wonderful organization. You have a great background with wonderful, wonderful brands in the not-for-profit space, St. Jude and City of Hope, but you moved to Habitat. So the first question is, why did you move from those wonderful ones to another wonderful one? (laughs) I loved working for both City of Hope and St. Jude. Uh, I have such a personal passion for healthcare, And uh, I actually at one point had considered becoming a doctor. So I loved working for both of those organizations. They their missions are wonderful. And um, they were both great experiences. Um, But joining Habitat has been uh, an incredible a stop on my career journey. And one of the reasons that uh, coming to Habitat was appealing to me was because Habitat, as you mentioned in your opening remarks, has such an incredible brand, but has really, over the 40-year history of Habitat, hadn't really tapped and leveraged that brand, particularly with corporates in a cause marketing space, as I thought and Habitat had thought that they could. So I felt that there was um, ripe with opportunity. It was ripe with opportunity to use the brand and tap the brand and try to explore cause in a new way. And it's been an interesting, I just, I just celebrated my seventh anniversary here this week. And it's been, thank you. It's gone by very, very quickly. Um, and it's been a remarkable few years for the organization and, and truly a transformational time to be here at Habitat. And as the organization has evolved um, over the last couple of years, the world around us has also been changing really at a rapid pace. I think the world is changing so quickly, uh, and particularly corporate America. 
and how corporates engage with nonprofits like Habitat and, and many, many others. And of course, you know, we are on the front lines of evolving trends. You know, you referenced volunteer engagement and employee engagement, um, cause marketing. Um, now, you know, not navigating the triple bottom line with our partners. But we're also learning from them, you know, as the business leaders that they are, as the experts in their respective fields, um, and really able to glean insights from them on things that we can do better and trying to evolve our portfolio to be truly 360 degree partnerships. So I know we're going to dig into that a little bit more deeply, but um, it's, it's, it's really exciting. Well, it's, you've got great background and it's great that you've continued to learn from such a wonderful organization. So for our listeners that really don't know the genesis of Habitat, can you just go back to the year that you were founded, which was 1976, mm-hmm. and how you've evolved um, over the years? Yeah, um, 1976, back in the day. Um, Habitat for Humanity has grown from what was really a grassroots effort that began on a small community farm in southern Georgia to what is now a global nonprofit housing organization that works in local communities across all 50 states here in the U.S. and in more than 70 countries. And the crazy thing is so many people don't even know that Habitat works outside of the United States, which is crazy. But um, so much of our impact happens outside of the United States. So since our founding, um, Habitat has helped more than 29 million people obtain a safer place to sleep at night, along with the strength and stability and self-reliance to build better lives. And over the years and over the course of our history, there have come to be several things that Habitat is known for. And unfortunately, none of those things are true. (laughs) So that's been a challenge for us, particularly on the resource development side, to um, try to bust some of those myths as we're out meeting with corporate partners. So the first myth is that we give houses away. And prospective Habitat homeowners have to demonstrate the need for safe and affordable housing. And that need will vary from community to community. So, Carol, you mentioned that you built a Habitat house in Boston. And so the need for for housing in Boston is going to be very different from, let's say, the need in a Bangladesh or a Zambia in Africa. And Habitat homeowners must partner with us throughout their process. And they often do that through what's known as sweat equity. So they help to build their own Habitat home or the homes of others through the Habitat homeownership program. But the most important thing is that people don't know that homeowners must be able and willing to pay an affordable mortgage. And those mortgage payments are actually cycled back into the community to help build additional Habitat houses. So myth number one, Habitat homeowners do, in fact, pay for their house by paying an affordable mortgage. The second myth that we struggle with, and this pains me as a resource development person, is that many companies, many donors don't think that Habitat needs to raise money. They think that we get all the products that we need. Um, we think they think that we get all of our, you know, gift and kind products donated from our generous partners like Whirlpool, like GAF Roofing, like Valspar, um, and that we have all these volunteers that come out and build the homes and repair homes alongside our Habitat families. But they don't think that we need money. Well, of course we need money, because especially today, as things like land costs are rising at incredible rates. And when disasters are striking nearly every day in communities around the world, um, of course, we need money. And so that is something that my team is kind of combating every day is to explain the need that, well, yes, we do have uh, incredible gift and kind support. And we do have the very generous gift of time from our treasured volunteers that that's not enough to keep our global uh, mission going. Okay. And I would assume today, um, obviously housing um, is, is really, really important, but also employee engagement seems to be at the top of the war for talent. And, uh, you know, I know from my experience where I had, you know, 10 teams of, of 10 people out, you know, working a lot to build our house, that it was an amazing team building experience. And so can you talk about 
just employee engagement today, what you know about the secret sauce to really make a great employee engagement experience. And also, I'd love to know about the communications around that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We know that engaging employees is so critical for companies. I mean, now more than ever, uh, from recruitment to retention to building morale, it's such a foundational element to corporate strategies. And it really has been Habitat's secret sauce for 40 years. Um, it really has is, is been so critical in building our brand and for engaging so many corporate partners. Um, and Habitat does provide a really wonderful and turnkey and global um, platform for engagement. And I think part of that secret sauce for us has been our footprint. Because we are have such a you know global <laughs> um, presence, and I'm saying that in air quotes, but um, global presence and the fact that we have presence in 1,200 communities here in the U.S. and then our international presence in 70 countries, particularly for multinational corporations that are looking for an organization that they can align with, where they can map their footprint with ours, we really do offer that very turnkey solution where wherever their headquarters is, but wherever their sales offices are or plants are, or they have employees around the world, there's typically a place where we can align them with a Habitat project. So that's been great. Yeah. Tell me what are the best insights to have the best employee engagement experience with Habitat? Number one is having a champion. I think you probably hear that from a lot of organizations. Having a champion or cadre of champions that become your ambassadors creates momentum. Okay, great. Right. So um, we've seen that once you get that momentum going, it's contagious. Um, Clearly, the build experience, if you're a company of, you know, thousands and thousands of, of employees, not everybody can go participate every year. But when those opportunities come about, we see them, you know, again, quote unquote, sell out so quickly because the passion um, for the employees is there. And so um, having those champions that get it and want to promote it and get other people um, to come out and experience is really key. The second, anchoring it to more than a one and done experience. So when the commitment, and I'll use Habitat because I think it's applicable beyond Habitat to other organizations. If it's not just a transactional experience where folks are going out for the day and they're done, but it's woven into the fabric of a company's commitment either to the community or to giving back into their overall, you know, CSG, CSR strategy or ESG strategy, whatever that is, that it has more meaning, I think, to employees. And they start to see the narrative woven through what their company is doing. And and that's something else that we see is so, I mean, you see it, you see it in the research, you see it in the data that employees today, they want to know what their companies are doing <laughs> to give back to the community. And it's not just a one and done thing. It's truly woven into the fabric of what their philanthropic strategy is. And so how can, you know, how is that employee engagement piece woven into that company's narrative? That it's not just a one-off, check the box, we're going to make this available, but it's woven into your workplace giving strategy. It's woven into your cause marketing strategy. It's woven into kind of the DNA of the company because it adds more meaning to employees. Give us some examples. You don't have to say what company, but some really great communications examples. You know, not just putting it in the newsletter or a picture on your you know, internal Facebook, but what are some that really work well? I think Whirlpool has done a great job of it um, because they've integrated what they do with Habitat everywhere. <laughs> so, yes, the employee engagement piece is critical and they sponsor Habitat homes um, throughout the year and their employees get engaged. 
um, they put their products into action and they, you know, they donate a range and refrigerator, a range and refrigerator um, into habitat, every habitat new home that's built in the U.S. So that's giving their employees the opportunity to see the actual products that they sell, giving back in the community their products in action. So there's a narrative there. Um, they have um, developed a partnership with Chef Roe, who is an award-winning, you know, celebrity chef that grew up in a Habitat home. And the connection between her celebrity chef and being able to speak to kind of the Whirlpool appliances and her experience growing up as in a Habitat home is so authentic to the partnership. Um, you know, they support signature Habitat events. So they really created this kind of 360 degree narrative about the partnership. They've ha they have executives sitting on local Habitat boards. They have um, one of their executives is sitting on our national um, U.S. advocacy campaign advisory board. So they've really extended kind of their uh, relationship in ways that are so meaningful and authentic to their brand that it tells a very deep story to their employees. Talk a little bit about your your fundraising that's not just paying for a home. I know a home, when I funded it, was about $70,000. And I know that that's raised to like 90 to 100. It's an average, depends on, you know, what yeah. city, what the land costs are. But you also have your restores. And I don't think a lot, there are a thousand of them around the globe. So, you know, where are these, and I know that your fund, that your revenues are in excess of $300 million, um, And that doesn't include the in-kind. So tell me how you're fundraising via restores in other ways. Yeah, um, the restores are really a remarkable um, opportunity for Habitat because for a variety of reasons. Um, number one, the affiliates, uh, the Habitat affiliates across the country and for those locations that are outside of the United States, um, the restores have become just a remarkable fundraising opportunity, uh, community engagement opportunity, and it's a great sustainability story for for donors, <laughs> particularly um, because if you're not familiar with the restores, they're really um, they're a retail outlet, and they are a resale outlet. So you have people um, who might be, let's say, renovating a kitchen, and they come and they will donate their you know, old cabinets or um, might be buying new furniture, they'll they'll donate their old furniture that's still in good use and, and available for resale to a restore uh, for resale in the community. But then we also have corporate partners that will donate their discontinued merchandise, scratch and dent merchandise, return merchandise. And the story there is whether it's the customers that are bringing in things, recycle things from their homes or corporate partners that are donating materials for res for resale. It's a great story on sustainability and that all this stuff is avoiding going to the landfill, number one. Yep. Circular <laughs> um, economy. Yep. Yeah. It's great. fantastic. Um, number two, in many of our um, habitat communities, the money that's raised from the restore either goes to cover the administrative costs for our affiliates so that any philanthropy that they raise can go direct 100% to, to serving the families in their communities, or it really helps to offset the administrative costs for the local affiliates so that they can put their philanthropy to the greatest use in their communities. So it is a wonderful, wonderful story um, as far as how to leverage that in a variety of different ways to help um, increase our impact um, at the local level. I would say to any company who's listening, you do a, do at least one Habitat house. I mean, it is extraordinary. You know, you could do five or 10 or more. You're going to get hooked on it. But I know that you have a, um, a an affiliated network. So you've got corporate and then you've got your locals. And so what is the best way that you have learned to serve um, a corporate in that model? Because it's not that easy. It's not. I mean, it's one of the 
amazing blessings of habitat. And it's also one of the hard things about habitat, um, particularly for donors trying to navigate (laughs) um, the complexity of the habitat network, because we do have 1,200 local chapters across the United States as part of our federated model. And then you have Habitat International that is kind of the mothership (laughs) um, that is here out of Atlanta and, and has the the whole enchilada, so to speak. Um, and so trying to find, you know, what is, you know, threading that needle as to what is the the best value proposition for Habitat International and dealing with donors and, and vice versa can be complicated sometimes. And I think um, where we try to add that value is for multinational corporations that want to be able to have impact here in multiple communities or multi-state and international locations, can we be, you know, add a value as a one-stop shop versus having to go and negotiate with 20 states and <laughs> 20 countries, um, you know, versus a, a company that may only have presence in, you know, one or two cities in a singular state, and it makes sense for them to work directly with those affiliates directly. So it really comes down to, as with everything, what's the donor's intent? You know, what are they looking to do and how do they want to work? And what is their, you know, what are their objectives? And how can my team here at International in partnership with our affiliate leaders in the markets where they want to work, come up with something that meets um, the donor's objectives so that they're happy and they want to do more? And and that's great that you talked about objectives because um, in our book, Breakthrough Not-for-Profit Branding, that we wrote to help not-for-profits be better partners, the most important, there's like one single construct in there, and it's about goals. And it's your goals, which is the corporate goals, it's the not-for-profit goals, and it's the shared goals. Yes. And it sounds that you exactly (laughs) live and breathe that. Yes. So so kudos to you that you're you're, um, doing that function. Um, are there any insights in terms of that process? Because if you have the clarity at the beginning, you're going to have a much better outcome. So you know, what can you share with our listeners about really making sure that there's a crispness to the, why are we starting out on this adventure together? I think that's what you just said is so critical, is how from the very beginning can we define what our respective objectives are, what our respective priorities are, and defining what does good look like? What does success look like? So that we're all marching towards the the same North Star. Um, A lot of times things can come together really quickly and you miss that step and you regret it later. (laughs) Um, Because particularly with new partners where you haven't built up enough of that trust with each other or you don't know each other as well yet. Um, and frankly, that happens too with legacy partners. You could get too comfortable, right? To, to force yourselves to stop and pause and say, okay, wait. Um, you know, I, I said or, you know, earlier in kind of the, the opening that the world is changing really fast. Um, the corporate environment is changing fast, but nonprofits are changing really fast too. And so to carve out that time to say, okay, wait, maybe, you know, our, our objectives from a year ago, five years ago are surely not the same objectives as they might be today. And quite frankly, even they may have pivoted from six months ago. So how can we um, stop and reflect and make sure, okay, are we working off the same set of assumptions? And are, are even Habitat's priorities today the same as they were two years ago? Likely not. <laughs> um, and so how do we make sure we're constantly, you know, once, twice a year, in addition to our weekly meetings with our partners or biweekly meetings, going, okay, are we still, are we still working towards the same end goal here and having that constant dialogue? So is your recommendation to actually build that into the contract, which says, you know, twice a year, we're going to have a formal analysis. I mean, how do you make sure that it happens versus it just, you know, good intentions at the beginning, but then it doesn't happen? Yeah, I don't I don't think we formally build it into a contract per se, Um, but it does take 
it, it does take the diligence to make it happen, um, particularly as people get busy. And I don't know if it needs to, I, I don't think it needs to be a formal convening of everybody gets on a plane and goes and has a formal workshop necessarily. But I think it's just getting into the practice of calling a timeout. <laughs> Even if it's a, if it's a, um, kind of grassroots timeout just to say, hey, how we doing? <laughs> um, can we take a, a, a self-assessment here? How we doing? You know, do we need to pivot on anything? And it's a practice that we've started to do, you know, not just with our partnerships, but with a lot of the big initiatives that we're working on at Habitat because you get busy, you know, and you get in, you just get into your groove and you just keep marching forward. And Sometimes you need to get out of your own headspace and just pause and go, okay, let's just take a time out here time out. and time you know, out. check our okay. pulse. Like, how are we doing? Okay. Um, right. You know, do great. we need to, do we need to pivot? And I think the same is true sure. with our partners. We need to give ourselves that, that grace and space to, to check in with each other. Great. Grace and space. So let's pivot to measurement mm. and how, and I'm curious both at the uh, corporate level and then as at the local level. How do you measure and are your measures like do you with a standard set that you will give to corporates um, or do you negotiate what they want for measurement? How does that work? Yeah. Measurement is always a hot topic. And I'll tell you why. Um, it's one of those things that everybody wants and very few want to pay for. <laughs> yes, I heard um, that many times, right? So um, it's one of the things that you know, in, in total candor, we're struggling with a little bit to try to figure out what's the right model to get both, to get the measurement we want and we need that our partners want and are, are craving and that has a viable funding model to get it done. And so Habitat has historically been very um, focused on output measurements. How many homes have we built? How many volunteers have we had? And we've had a lot of anecdotal stories about our work. You know, volunteers go out, we meet the homeowners, we have the before and after stories um, of how how their lives have changed, how their children have now gone on to be first time, you know, college graduates and the family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we haven't had a lot of true outcomes measured um, data. And so we're, as an organization, are really shifting towards having true investment in U.S. monitoring and evaluation and international um, monitoring and evaluation for a variety of reasons. Number one is we are working with much more sophisticated um, foundations, institutional donors, you have to, like it is just not up for negotiation. Um, and number two, the beyond those donors, but going back to the world is changing at a rapid pace, the level of sophistication of all kinds of donors is evolving and the expectations of those donors is changing. So um, we're moving in that direction, but we, but we do need the support of the donors that want that type of of data and, and measurement to come along with us and recognize that it's not free. Um, it's actually the people that do that work, um, they're very sophisticated, um, smart people with sophisticated tools and, and requirements that are going to cost money to get us there. So how are you going to fund it? Are you going to put out, um, ask for grant money, some of your foundations to do yep. that? Yeah, grant money. Um, we're going to be doing some specific U.S.-based research studies that we'll be looking for um, partners to come in and help uh, help underwrite some of that work, um, depending on some of the specific programs and initiatives that we have. We'll be trying to bake some of that into the the grant funding that we're going to be applying for. So, um, lots of different ways because I, you know there's not going to be one magical unicorn donor that will come and pay for right. it all you so hope, we'll or have to, you hope there might be <laughs> yeah that would be amazing right. if you know right. any um yep. or if any are listening please call me um but but i think there's going to be a variety of ways that we'll we'll need to crack that nut because um it's data that we need in order to continue to improve and innovate our work um, and serve families um, in the way that we can be the most effective, but also to continue to to feed the donors and um, work with them in ways that they and meet them where they want to be met. Sure. And, and let's talk about we started out by saying that you you do homes, but you also do more than homes or you do 
different types of builds. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about the expansive ways that Habitat's involved, um, such as disaster response. Um, you've got your women's builds, your veterans builds, you're involved in cause marketing. So talk about the whole ecosystem of Habitat. Yeah, thank you. One of uh, one of the an, another myth, I guess, um, thinking back to some of our myths, is you know when we started Habitat, you know, corporate programs, you know, many you know decades ago, the foundation of that work was really built on our employee engagement and our our employee engagement program and people able to come out and and build with us and and do the team building and the house sponsorship. That's been remarkable and wonderful. Um, but what has happened is companies think about us only in that way. And there, as you mentioned, there are so many other facets to our work that we've had to spend a lot of time educating partners, corporate partners and donors um, on the wealth of opportunities that exist to engage with us. And that's been part of our strategy over the last couple of years is really walking them through our strategic plan and saying, yes, here's our our opportunities to go and build and repair homes and bring your employees out to do that. It's kind of the foundational piece of our work. But we really want um, to talk to you about from a 360 degree view the other programs, transformational programs that we have, you mentioned disaster response and women build and our water and sanitation programs and um, all of the other components of our work that are foundational to having global impact uh, in the housing sector. And then things like leveraging your brand through cause marketing or working with us through advocacy and looking at gift and kind. You know, I spoke to a little bit about that and how you can put your products into use in, in our work. So trying to paint that more holistic picture for partners that it's employee engagement and not just hard stop on employee engagement. Sure, the power of and for sure. Are, are your are, is there a greater um interest in your women's build and your veterans builds? So I'm just curious. There is. I mean, um, Lowe's continues to be an, an incredible partner um, with Women Build. We're actually this this March will be our 13th year with them. They've expanded to be um, international Women Build. Um, they're doing uh, International Women Build Week with us now in Canada and India to align with some of their business priorities, which is super exciting um, and helps us tell our international story as, as well, which is great. Um, Home Depot is our signature partner um, in a major way with our veterans program. Um, and again, really aligns with their core priority around supporting veterans, which is which is great. It's a great example of where we're finding shared value there. Um, so those are two really great programs. But the other thing that's been great for us is, you know, Habitat's role in helping to shape the sustainable development goals. And when you look at the sustainable development goals and have and housing, being either a driver or a catalyst or a contributor to 13 of the 17 SDGs, when we talk to companies that have made commitments around the SDGs or thinking about it or are trying to figure out what are their, um, you know, where are they going to play there, we're able to tell a pretty compelling story about where housing fits um, from a philanthropic standpoint for partners that are looking to, to, to play in that space. And so that's also helping us to move kind of beyond the employee engagement plus, right? So that's been really fruitful for us when we're talking about climate change and disaster response and water and sanitation and gender and you know, poverty and all of the, the pieces and parts that comprise the SDGs and where Habitat fits there. You know, here in the U.S. and, of course, internationally in the places that we work, that has also been um, a pretty compelling conversation with many of our partners. Can you talk about neighborhood revitalization? Because that seems like um, a more holistic um, approach uh, beyond just a house or a series of row houses or such. Yeah, neighborhood revitalization is actually a great example back to measurement. Um, so neighborhood revitalization, we have affiliates all around the country, probably about 300 
uh, affiliates now, maybe more than that, that are doing intensive neighborhood revitalization, meaning they're picking specific neighborhoods within the areas that they serve where they're going deep and working with the residents in those neighborhoods to really redefine what they want, taking taking the residents' voices, which is so important in development, um, taking the residents' voices and helping to chart the path forward for that neighborhood. And so we're doing a really exciting project right now in 10 neighborhoods. Um, and it's a long-term um, outcomes measurement project with support. So here's a great example of some partners that are helping us to, to fund some long-term outcome measurements work. Um, Robert Wood Johnson and Wells Fargo and Lowe's and General Motors, where we're looking at what we're calling testing our quality of life framework. And the premise there is housing is foundational to so many things, right? If you don't have a, a solid, safe home, um, we know your health suffers. We know your livelihoods can suffer. Um, Safety is a concern. And what this study is doing is it's looking at all of the kind of sector adjacent components from transportation, safety, schools in the neighborhood, health, you know, access to healthcare and hospitals, and looking to see how um, all of those components really connect um, and impact the residents' quality of life. And so that will be a really interesting, again, long-term um, evaluation study that will be probably one of the big first ones here in the U.S. that we'll be able to have some great data around. And is is um, RWJ, are they the driver of it or are you driving it? We're driving it. They are one of the funders. Yeah, and that's very much in terms of the type of work exactly. that they like, they like to exactly. do. Exactly. Well, I'm curious, what was the genesis of this idea? At some point, you're saying we've got to be more than housing. Um, we've got to be more than lover women build, veterans build, but we need more. What was the genesis of that? Well, I think the genesis came really from our strategic plan um, okay. that started back, I guess, 2013. When we looked at the the housing, the global housing crisis and realizing that we're doing great work, um, but with now going on, you know, 2 billion people around the world um, in need of affordable housing, we were never going to be able to make a dent on that going one house at a time, right? Or one repair. It was going to take how many gazillion years to, to make an impact on that. And so that really helped inform the path that we took in building our strategic plan, which was looking at, okay, yes, building community impact is still going to be so critical for our um, communities, you know, disaster response work, neighborhood revitalization, um, doing new construction, continuing to do repairs, um, taking advantage of, you know, at the time, um, the rehabbing foreclosed homes in the market, and we were getting many donated foreclosed properties. So that was still going to be a very big portion of our work. But again, doing those types of uh, projects wasn't going to get us to scale. So we said, how do we look at the sector at large and figure out how can we get to scale? And so that entered into our advocacy work. How can we really start to advocate for policy change, systems change, um, to be able to unlock either funding, federal funding, state, local funding that would help the affordable housing sector. It also um, launched our Terwilliger Center for Innovation and Shelter um, that, that does a lot, that focuses on housing microfinance um, out outside of the U.S., um, new market development ideas, and those opportunities tackle and unleash millions, you know, helping millions of people um, over time. And so that is really where we're seeing a lot of our scale. I would be remiss on in this conversation if I didn't ask about President Carter and, and Rosalind. And, and I hear that he's still showing up at Builds. Um, so... Talk about. I mean, he's such. Everybody said he was like even larger, larger, larger than life once he left his presidency. Oh my gosh, extraordinary! It is. 
probably an understatement. They are the most remarkable human beings. Um, again, another myth, I'll point back to another myth, is that so many people think that President Carter founded Habitat. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, many people think he runs Habitat. Um but he does, he's neither. He did not uh, found Habitat, nor does he run Habitat. Um, but they are by far our most famous volunteers, and, and we are incredibly blessed to have them. Um, yeah, since, since 1984, President and Mrs. Carter have been our most incredible champions and voices for our work. And I think to say that they have inspired millions and millions of people um, is probably also an understatement. But yeah, they have worked alongside over 100,000 volunteers and have, have built um, or repaired over 4,000 homes with Habitat. And um, they continue to do it. Uh, they are, they are, they just, they just keep going. Um, and they are the hardest working, hardest working people on the build site. I will tell you firsthand, um, I dare you to get caught taking a break. Um, when they're around, um, you no do breaks. not you do not want to be caught um, taking a rest. Um, but yeah, they are they are continuing to build. They were in Nashville with us last year for the Carter Project. Um, they are planning to be with us uh, in the Dominican Republic this fall when we have the 2020 Jimmy and Rosalind Carter Work Project, which is going to take place there um, in November. So they are just they remain just incredible servant leaders. And I think to your point, we'll leave an incredible, incredible legacy leaving the White House as far as the impact that they're having on humanity uh, through their work. Will they be at the uh, the corporate uh, um, conference that I'm going to be keynoting uh, next month? No, they will not. They will not. Oh, bummer. Okay. They're not spending very much time outside of planes these days. A journey, journey to see them and get them to, to sign my picture um, from my, my house build. Um, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, we always like, as we're getting to the end, to ask you, I've asked for lots of insights, but I want three additional insights. And I'd like you to focus on, you know, there are a lot of corporates out there and they're saying, you know, Habitat's great, great for employee engagement, but they've got a lot of partners. I mean, for top insights, either for someone considering you, a current partner, or any other insight you want to share. One insight that I would offer that we haven't talked about is if you're considering a partnership with Habitat or, or other organizations, I think it applies to, to any organization is think about the stakeholders in your company and look at your nonprofit partnership like you would look at other business opportunities and make sure you have the right people around the table. I think a lot of times we see partnerships start in one area of a company and they I don't want to say they get stuck there because that has a negative implication, but um, we have a hard time bringing other people to the table. And I don't think that companies always maximize the full potential or are able to identify. We talked a lot about shared value and finding shared objectives. Um, It's really hard to do that if you're not bringing all the right people to the table. So... um, particularly if you're trying to build a 360-degree partnership. If you want to have a partnership that's finding shared opportunity around advocacy priorities, you need to have your government relations people at the table. If you want to be leveraging your brand value, um, you need to have your marketing people at the table. If you're talking about employee relations and and, and team builds and workplace giving, you'd have your HR people at the table. If you're talking about philanthropy, where's your foundation, right? But if you just have one of those people, you can't expect to get very far or really take advantage of what all the opportunities are with your partner. And so that's a mistake I see happen a lot is that we don't engage all of the right people, but we can't engage them without the partner being willing to bring the right people to the table. So that that is probably the biggest opportunity to really see um, partnerships 
sing and blossom. How about um, the company? Because, you know, we, we've just conducted this business to business purpose research called the B2B Purpose Paradox. And I encourage all our listeners to go to our website, carolconeonpurpose.com and to download it. Uh, because we feel that, you know, the future in terms of purpose is is really hasn't penetrated deeply into the B2B world at all. And because, you know, recruitment and retention is absolutely key and um, engaging your ambassadors that we call believers, a huge, huge opportunity to build cohesion and momentum in your organizations. So what's your advice to that perhaps B2B or later B2C? Just beginning to embark on their purpose journey. What should they be thinking about besides having the right people at the table? Actually, it's funny that you said that was going to be my my next insight. Is you don't forget on the on the B two B side, or even on the B two C side. Quite frankly, don't forget about your vendors. Like don't, you have to think about your whole sphere of influence. And we've seen partners that have, when I talk about, when I said earlier, think about your narrative and how do you make your partnership authentic in all of your touch points? That means your vendors too. That means, you know, what does your supply chain look like? Where, where are you taking, what are you making a commitment to and how do you own that everywhere? Um, and we've seen partners that do that, you know, that they host to build, let's say, and they they do their team builds with their employees, but then they do a build and they bring their vendors in or they bring their suppliers in and they're like, hey, we're making a commitment with Habitat and we want you to come and be part of this and see how important this is. Um, and yeah, how are you now going to come really in? It's really amazing. You know, you're shoulder to shoulder using a power drill or a hammer or such with, you know, a, a, an important partner, client, a supply chain partner. It, it's really magical. Yeah. It's like, let's still go play golf with them. Come swing a hammer with them, you know? Um, so I think it's that whole sphere of influence is really mapping out. Um, if we're going to commit to this, how do we do it in a way that it is kind of, like I said earlier, embedded in your DNA? And that includes, you know, your vendors and your suppliers and 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 making it, whether you're B2B or B2C. Um, and on the, on the B2C side, I think that same thing is true. There's a lot of companies that, you know, shy away from wanting to talk about the great, great work that they're doing with their customers. You know, they they want to be humble. They are afraid they don't want to talk about it. They 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 want either the charity to do all the talking or, you know, have the customers find out about it in an organic way. And it's like, again, all, you know, the research is showing, particularly with younger customers, they want to know. Like they want to know from from brands, like what you doing? Because um, if I don't know from you, I'm going to go somewhere else. So tell me what you're doing, because it's going to be mean a lot to me. I'm going to shop. I'm going to spend my money with companies that have purpose and that are doing something to change the world. So you better tell. You better tell your customers what you're doing. You're going to earn their loyalty. And so I think that that applies to to both B two C and B two B. Terrific. So 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 Colleen, just one final thought. What haven't you said? What haven't you shared? I am going to not be humble for a second. And I'm going to say, I think that Habitat is on the verge of something big. Um, and I say that because, for a very sad reason, <laughs> um, and that is because of the affordable housing crisis here in the United States. And it's not just the United States, it's around the world, and that is a fact. But for the first time ever, <laughs> the affordable housing crisis is at the worst place it has ever been in the United States. And the issue of housing is more prevalent than it's ever been before. And so one of the things that I think we as a mission have struggled with up until now is people didn't really think about housing when they thought about charity. You know, you know people who have breast cancer, you know people that have had heart disease, you, you know, even looking at, you know, um, 
advertising and direct mail pieces from other charities that really pull on your heartstrings. It's very hard for people that did not grow up or experience poverty housing to relate. But now, here in the United States, affordable housing is on the radar of everyone. It's in the debates. It's in the news. It is omnipresent. Um, it is more timely for Americans than ever before. When you have 18 million U.S. households paying half or more of their income on a place to live, you cannot avoid it. So I think it's more relevant to people than in our lifetime we've ever experienced. So people care more about it. And when people care more about something and the issue is more top of mind, for companies, it's more top of mind for their workforces that are dealing with this issue, their customers are dealing with this issue. And so we have a new voice. Habitat has a new voice in this market. And so look out. So I want to thank you, Colleen. This has been a fascinating uh, discussion um, behind the scenes uh, with Colleen Finn Ridenauer. And she's the Chief Development Officer of Habitat for Humanity International. And we just wish you so well. You know, I guess I've got Habitat in my blood. And so I think that we hope that more of our listeners uh, will get some Habitat in their blood. And it'll be uh, either a once in a life or ongoing amazing experience. Thank you all for downloading and listening to Purpose 360. We're always interested in wonderful guests. So please send us your ideas, whether they're leaders in the for-profit world, the not-for-profit world, they're researchers, or they're experts of any kind. We really want to continue to up-level everyone's understanding of purpose and how to do it extraordinarily well. Can you also please pass along our podcast to your purpose leaders? And by the way, if you could write us a review, we hope five stars, and post it in Apple Podcasts or in your podcast directory of choice, that would be great. And don't forget to look for me. Um, I'm on the conference circuit all spring. Um, certainly sign up for Sustainable Brands. Um, it's going to be in Long Beach this year um, from June 1 through 4. And if you go to our newsletter or our website, there's a discount code for you. Again, go to carolconeonpurpose.com. And um, I also would like to share with you that we have conducted new research um, called the Business to Business Purpose Paradox. It's the most comprehensive study of business to business world and how they are embracing um, purpose. There's a lot of learning to go. We say the B2Bs are, are much earlier in their purpose journey, but it's great research. We did it for you to, again, up-level your capabilities. Just go to our website, carolcononpurpose.com, and download it and share it with your colleagues. I'm Carol Cohn, and I'd like to end with a question. What's your purpose? <laughs> <laughs>